Second Kings chapter 5, beginning in verse 1. This is God's word. Now Naaman, captain of the host of the king of Syria, was a great man with his master and honorable, because by him the Lord had given deliverance unto Syria. He was also a mighty man in valor, but he was a leper. And the Syrians had gone out by companies and had brought away captive out of the land of Israel a little, a little maid, and she waited on Naaman's wife. And she said unto her mistress, Would God, my lord, were with the prophet that is in Samaria, for he would recover him of his leprosy. And one went in and told his lord, saying, Thus and thus said the maid that is, in, that is of the land of Israel. And the king of Syria said, Go, to, go and I will send a letter to, unto the king of Israel. And he departed and took with him ten talents of silver and six thousand pieces of gold and ten changes of raiment. And he brought the letter to the king of Israel, saying, Now when this letter is come unto thee, behold, I have therewith sent Naaman my servant to thee, that thou mayest recover him of his leprosy. And it came to pass, when the king of Israel had read the letter, that he rent his clothes and said, Am I God to kill and to make alive, that this man doth send to me to recover a man of his leprosy? Wherefore I pray you, and see how he seeketh a quarrel against me. And it was so when Elisha, the man of God, heard that the king of Israel had rent his clothes, that he sent to the king, saying, Wherefore hast thou rent thy clothes? Let him come to me, now to me, and he shall know that there is a prophet in Israel. So Naaman came with his horses and with his chariot, and stood at the door of the house of Elisha. And Elisha sent a messenger unto him, saying, Go and wash in the Jordan seven times, and thy flesh shall come again to thee, and thou shalt be clean. But Naaman was wroth, and went away, and said, Behold, I thought he will surely come out to me, and stand, and call on the name of the Lord his God, and strike his hand over the place, and recover the leper. Are not Abana and Farpar rivers of Damascus better than all the waters of Israel? May I not wash in them, and be clean? So he turned, and went away in a rage. And his servants came near, and spake unto him, and said, My father, if the prophet had bid thee to do, that, do some great thing, wouldst thou not have done it? How much rather then, when he saith unto thee, Wash, and be clean? Then he went down, and dipped himself seven times in, the, in Jordan, according to the saying of the man of God, and his flesh came again, like unto the flesh of a little child, and he was clean. And he returned to the man of God, he and all his company, and came, and stood before him, and, sa and he said, Behold, now I know that there is no God in all the earth, but in Israel. Now therefore I pray thee, take a blessing of thy servant. But he said, As the Lord liveth before whom I stand, I shall, will receive none. And he urged him to take it, but he refused. And Naaman said, Shall there not then, I pray thee, be given to thy servant two mules burden of earth? For thy servant will henceforth offer neither burnt offering nor sacrifice unto other gods, but unto the Lord. In this thing the Lord pardon thy servant, that when my master goeth into the house of Rimmon to worship there, and he leaneth on my hand, and I bow myself in the house of Rimmon, when I bow down myself in the house of Rimmon, the Lord pardon thy servant in this thing. And he said unto him, Go in peace. So he departed from him a little way. I find something endearing in this story. It captures the imagination concerning the character of Naaman. We find him described as a mighty war leader, a raider of Israel, according to the directives of the king of Syria. We see him also heeding the voice of his wife, who heeded the voice of her Israelite maid. This captive child seems so concerned for her master and his wife that she points them to the help that he so desperately needs. 
And if there is one negative trait that we find in the character of Naaman, we expect, it is one that we expect to find in a noble, honorable, and strong man, and that is the sin of pride. It would be wrong for us to think this story is primarily about Naaman. It certainly isn't Elisha. In these 19 verses, Elisha only appears in four of them, 8, 10, 15, and 19. And most of the time, he appears only by messenger and speaks to Naaman himself directly only a few words. The main character in this story is the Lord, the one who acts to heal Naaman, not just in the actual event, but in orchestrating the entire series of events by his providence. Naaman, the story, serves as a warning to the people of the northern kingdom of Israel. The story probably takes place during the reign of Joram, who takes the throne in 2 Kings chapter 3 and reigns until Jehu arises in chapter 9 of 2 Kings. During his reign, he abandoned the worship of Baal and Asherah, which probably upset his mom, Jezebel, who was still living. And although he puts away the idols, he still maintains the corrupted worship of the Lord, started by Jeroboam I. He will be the king mentioned in this passage. The Syrian attack that led to the capture of this maid might have taken place during the war that led to Joram's death in 1 Kings chapter 22. While Israel continues to deal with the aftermath of the reign of Ahab and Jezebel, their enemies, the Syrians, send unto them their greatest military leader to be healed. He returns different, a difference that indicates the change Israel needs to undergo. For God's people need the same washing that Naaman receives. This is powerfully demonstrated in the fact that Gehazi, Elisha's servant, presumably an Israelite, because of his sin, receives Naaman's affliction. In this passage, I want us to consider Naaman's cleansing in the command, the effect, and the result. The command, the effect, and the result. The first heading covers a lot of ground, for Naaman faces a number of problems before he gets the solution prescribed by the prophet that he seeks. The first problem we find in verse 1. Now Naaman, captain of the host of the king of Syria, was a great man with his master and honorable, because by him the Lord had given deliverance into Syria. He was also a mighty man in valor, but he was a leper. Naaman has everything going for, for, for him. But he suffers leprosy. We don't know how this came to be. We might assume that the affliction came upon him uh, near in time to this story. While the Syrians may not have had the same laws regarding leprosy as Israel did, they probably wouldn't have tolerated it in the presence of common society. Naaman, then, if we are right, has built up this reputation and fame and faces being evicted from everything he has worked for due to to his leprosy. But the solution for his problem comes from an unlikely source. And the Syrians had gone, verse 2, out by companies and had brought away captive out of the land of Israel a little maid, and she waited on Naaman's wife. And she said unto her mistress, Would God, my Lord, were with the prophet that is in Samaria, for he would recover him his leprosy. The captive Israelite girl seems so moved by the plight of her mistress and her husband that she recommends a course of treatment. This certainly 
proclaims the nobility of uh, Naaman and his wife, that this captive, this one kidnapped out of her homeland, is so caring about uh, her master and mistress that she says this and points them to the direction of hope. It might seem more palatable for us to suppose that she makes this statement in hope of revenging herself on her captives by sending uh, this military man into hostile territory, but the context doesn't support this theory. Instead, we must see the author as portraying Naaman as more honorable than the people of Israel, so impressive and kind that this captive wishes good for him and for his wife. Now this brings us to the second problem. The author seems rather uncertain about the method of communication here. And one went in and told his Lord, saying, Thus and thus said the maid that is of the land of Israel. And the king of Assyria said, Go to, go, and I will send a letter unto the king of Israel. And he departed and took with him ten talents of silver, six thousand pieces of gold, and ten changes of raiment. And he brought a letter unto the king of Israel, saying, Now when this letter is come unto thee, behold, I have sent therewith, my, uh, I have therewith sent Naaman my servant to thee, that thou may recover him of his leprosy. It came to pass, when the king of Israel had read the letter, that he rent his clothes and said, Am I God to kill and make alive, that this man doth send unto me to recover a man of his leprosy? Wherefore, consider, I pray you, and see how he seeketh a quarrel against me. If Naaman's leprosy was a sudden outbreak, it probably is unlikely that he himself would go into the king's presence. And yet, we see him able to gain the king's support and to gather a contingent of servants to travel with him into what was enemy hostile land. To the, capital of nation, uh, to the capital of the nation that recently was at war with them. Syria seems to have made peace with Israel in some way that the king of Assyria acts as the stronger of the two monarchs. The king's letter seems to indicate, I have the right to impose this upon you. Do this as my vassal. This causes great anguish in the mind of the king of Israel. Here is his Lord sending him this man to do with him something that the king finds impossible. What conflict would result if Israel, if the king cannot meet his conditions? And how could the king uh, fulfill such a request? To the king, the road to war seems inevitable. And yet the Lord is at work. He gave the captive the message that sent Naaman to Samaria. He put on the little girl's heart to send, his, uh, send this man to Samaria. And now he sends word through Elisha to the king to take Naaman on the next stage of the journey. Look at verse 8. And it was so when Elisha, the man of God, heard that the king of Israel had rent his clothes, that he sent unto the king, saying, Wherefore hast thou rent thy clothes? Let him, now come, let him come now to me, and he shall know that there is a prophet in Israel. We may suppose that Elisha is now staying at a house in or around Samaria during the series of events. His last appearance, he was in Gilgal, which is south of Samaria, and he will next appear in Second Kings in Dothan, which is north of Samaria. The king here has not yet seen the power of Elisha, and yet he, will, yet he will do so in the next chapter when Elisha will walk into the city of Samaria with an entire blinded Syrian army. But for now, this prophet, this untested prophet, 
offers the king a way out of his predicament. And the king takes the chance and sends Naaman to Elisha. Verse 9, so Naaman came with his horses and with his chariot and stood at the door of the house of Elisha. You can feel the tension building. The military commander of Syria stands in battle array, presumably, at the door of Elisha. Of course, him being a leper, he can't just bounce into Elisha's house, and so he must wait at the door for the prophet to come and speak to him. And he does not do so. In verse 10, And Elisha sent a messenger unto him, saying, Go and wash in the Jordan seven times, and thy flesh shall come again to thee, and thou shalt be clean. It's often when we read these kind of things, we forget the geography that's taking place. The River Jordan doesn't run outside the city gates of Samaria. It's, gonna, it's not even a couple of miles down the road. It is 20 miles as the crow fly flies east of Samaria over uneven terrain. It's a simple request, but the travel time is going to make it rather inconvenient. We think of 20 miles as nothing. This is, uh, considering where they are in the relative position, this is probably a day's journey for Naaman to make it to the Jordan River. And Naaman has already done some considerable travel to get him from Syria to Samaria. Now he faces another day of travel before the promised healing. And yet he has received the answer he has looked for. The Lord has brought him to the opportunity to be healed. The Lord has given him instructions about how he is to be healed. Purity demands that we submit to God's method and timing of his work of purifying his people. We see the work of the Lord throughout the story. He is operating in such a way to bring people to himself. After all, the Lord could have healed Naaman even without his leaving his house. But God intended a greater healing than one of Naaman's body. The Lord planned to purify his soul. The Lord will heal in a way that Naaman cannot but recognize the power of the God of Israel. The ways of the Lord often seem to our minds slow and unnecessarily complex, but our minds are wrong. Who are we to criticize the work of the Creator? Who are we to question the wisdom that structured the fabric of reality? Do we imagine that we have any foundation upon which to challenge the plan of the Almighty? Do we have even the ability to reasonably, intelligibly debate his methodology? All we have, in some sense, is to bring up before the Lord his plan's effect upon us. We cry with the psalmist, how long? We praise the event of resolution in our hearts. We are children confident of the ability of our Heavenly Father to navigate paths impossible for us to discern. Our purity depends on our willingness to trust and follow the directions of the Lord wherever they lead. He does not leave us to our own subjective understanding, but provides us a map through his prophets and his word. This is our guide, and we must trust and follow it. We see command, the command, but secondly, we see the effect As simple but inconvenient as the task given to Naaman might be, 
it didn't deserve his horror at it. It becomes the work of his servant to show him what a heroic task it really is. Naaman responds to the prophet's instruction with disdain. In verse 11 we read, Now Naaman was wroth and went away and said, Behold, I thought he will surely come out to me and stand and call on the name of the Lord his God and strike his hand over the place and recover the leper. Are not Abana and Farpar, rivers of Damascus, better than all the waters in Israel? May I not wash in them and be clean? So he turned and went away in a rage. Naaman objects to the method the prophet chooses to bring healing to him. And we may consider his anger unreasonable, knowing that Elisha is only telling him what the Lord has instructed him. Elisha did not choose the manner of healing. But before judging Naaman too harshly, let's consider his point of view. From his experience, the priests of the idols that he is familiar with chose how their rituals were to be done. He saw them as the one who invented uh, the means by which uh, to work power. He isn't familiar with the prophets of the Lord or the laws by which they must function. To him, this prophet is just being obstructive for no apparent reason. In his mind, the application of healing should immediately take place. Moreover, he seems to possess a prejudiced view of the Jordan River. Perhaps he responds out of national pride. Perhaps the Jordan had a reputation of being muddy. But it seems like national pride's more the issue when he talks about the rivers of his homeland. But his argument doesn't make a lot of sense. That traveling all the way to Samaria, he should go all the way back home in order to wash and be clean. He has come to a prophet of Israel, and it is, is it unreasonable to expect a prophet of Israel to tell this man to go to Israel's local river? After all, he is pleading, in a sense, uh, for help from the God of Israel, and should the God of Israel send him to a foreign land to be clean? Naaman seems to show a bit of petulance in his objection to the task that is assigned him, and he goes off in a rage. He's a man, of a warrior, indulging in a temper tantrum. And his, but his servants view this task with patient favor. Oh, verse 13, And his servants came near and spake unto him and said, My father, if, some, if the prophet had bid thee to do some great thing, wouldst thou not have done it? How much rather then, when he saith unto thee, Wash and be clean? Before the legend of Heracles and his twelve labors brought to fame uh, the idea of heroic feats, the principle probably existed in the culture. The evidence of this concept appears in the servant's argument. Surely a brave warrior like their master would have attempted any heroic feat the prophet had given him. Certainly, you, strong Naaman, if the prophet had said, go kill a bunch of people, go uh, get the golden fleece, go wrestle the centaur, uh, you would have done it. The smallness of the work of washing in the water should not cause their master to abandon the pursuit. Just because it's a little thing doesn't mean that you shouldn't do it. For what if it worked? Perhaps Naaman wanted the greater task. Maybe he wanted a feat that would set him apart in the realm of heroes. 
Greek myths regularly included such events. The oracle gave the human a task in order to earn the boon that they sought. It becomes expected, and we probably ought not think that this process was an invention of the Greeks. Perhaps Naaman wants a task that will show him to triumph over his leprosy. Instead, he is given a task that might suggest that he is the problem instead of the hero. He is given a task that suggests that he is unclean and needs washing. Purity sees power in the ordinary means of grace. The ordinary means of grace require humility. We still carry the idol of self that longs to heroically triumph over all of our problems. We want to fix it for ourselves and for others. We want recognition from others that we have achieved some measure of honor by fixing our own problems. And the means of grace remind us that instead of the hero, we are the redeemed villain. In the means of grace, we remain passive. We receive the word. We pray for grace. We receive the sacrament. We attend worship. Even the name, the means of grace, clues us into the passive nature. They are means by which God, the actor, gives grace to us. Beware the heart that demands more from God than he promises. Beware the impatient that demands instant sanctification. Beware the pride that seeks to fix our perceived problems. For the hardest thing for us to do since Adam took and ate of the fruit is to believe the truth that we are not like God. Purity humbly waits for the power of God. Purity resorts often to the water of life. Purity knows that contamination does not subsist in superficial stains, but in the very leprosy of sin, the corruption of the flesh. But even so, the effect of obedience shows the Lord's power. In verse 14, Then he went down and dipped himself seven times in the Jordan, according to the saying of the man of God, and his flesh came again like unto the flesh of a little child, and he was clean. Naaman obeyed the word of the Lord through the prophet and found purity. Is that not the sum and substance of sanctification? The word of God to us is not through a single prophet. It is through the prophets that encompass the entirety of Scripture. And yet they have just as much power. As passive as we might be in the means of grace, we obey in great hope, for we have the promises of God regarding its power. It is the power of the gospel. We have the examples of Scripture that give evidence to their might. We have the testimony of our heart, own hearts to the effect that grace works in us. We see the command and we see the effect, and finally, we see the results. There's one topic that I can consistently come back to, and you might get tired of it, but I will not tire of putting it up when it arises in Scripture. As Naaman returns to Elisha, we see him bringing new problems to find new solutions. See, Naaman's problem is no longer his illness, it is something else. Verse 15, 
And he returned to the man of God, he and all his company, and came and stood before him and said, Behold, now I know that there is no God in all the earth but in Israel. Now therefore I pray thee, take a blessing of thy servant. The setting is somewhat unclear due to the author's liberal use of the pronoun, who is he? When does he shift from Naaman to Elisha or vice versa? Is the he that came and stood uh, Naaman or Elisha? We know that even when the speaker shifts between verse 15 and 16, the same pronoun appears. And we only know that there's a shift in personality due uh, to the context. So let's have both men standing and facing one another. And as we do so, let's reflect on why Naaman does not immediately bow before Elisha in recognition of the power of God. Has he not learned humility? Well, I think Naaman's statement reveals the very opposite. Naaman shows great spiritual understanding. He recognizes that Elisha didn't heal Naaman. The Lord did. Part of the answer to why Naaman had to go into the river Jordan rather than the rivers of Damascus, rather than Elisha uh, waving his hand over the place, is the reality that God is proclaiming to Naaman that he and he alone will heal him. That he and he alone in his land brings healing. In that day, people understood deities to be bound by geography. By healing Naaman in the land of Jordan, the Lord communicated to him in a way that he could understand that the only God who could heal was the God of Israel. And Naaman learned well this truth. He rejects the entire pantheon of his own nation to profess monotheism to the God of his nation's enemy. There is only one God, he says, the God of Israel. It's a startling realization that leads to three problems. Problem one, he wants to reward Elisha. He still is trying to use his old understanding of religious practices and the religion of the God of Israel. But it won't work. Verse 16, but he said, as the Lord liveth before whom I stand, I will receive none and he urged him to take it, but he refused. Elisha bluntly refuses. To accept the gift from Naaman would dilute the lesson that the Lord has striven to teach this commander from Syria. For Elisha to take a reward from Naaman is implicitly saying that Elisha had something to do with his healing. And Elisha is saying, no, the Lord has healed you. You need to learn it. It needs to be imprinted into your understanding. And as Gehazi Elisha's servant goes back and gets a reward from Naaman to do that thing which Elisha refuses to do. We can understand the severity of his punishment as he has not sanctified the name of the Lord his God before Naaman. He receives Naaman's leprosy. That was the first problem. The second problem we see in verse 17. And Naaman said, Shall there not then, I pray thee, be given unto thy servant two mules burden of earth? For thy servant will henceforth offer neither sacrifice nor burnt offering nor sacrifice unto any other gods but unto the Lord. What's the second problem? Worship. Spoiler alert. The result of the healing of Naaman ends in worship. A topic so important that we should expect its appearance often. This is the one topic that I keep going back to that you might get tired of, but it shows up in blatant fashion. 
Again, we see the nature of the geographic view of deities. We may cavil with what Nathan, Naaman requests. He seems to have much to learn in our estimation of the worship of the Lord. We may accuse him of only, should, he should only have worshipped the Lord in Jerusalem. Yet as a member of the Syrian military, this would pro prove problematic, if not impossible. And so something more ancient seems appropriate, something that harkens all the way back to Exodus, where the Lord says in Exodus 20, 24, an altar of earth thou shalt make unto me, and thou shalt sacrifice thereon thy burnt offerings and thy peace offerings, thy sheep and thine oxen, in all places where I record my name, I will come unto thee, and I will bless thee. Well, this does not specify the earth of Israel. It certainly beats a golden calf. Naaman doesn't need the dirt from Israel, but in taking the dirt from Israel, he is recognizing that it is the God of Israel that this altar is for. An altar built upon the ground that is connected to the Lord's promise without images is probably as good as a soldier in Damascus can do. His third problem includes worship part two. Naaman knows his closeness to the king. And this is the problem. Verse 18, In this thing the, the Lord pardon thy servant, that when my master goeth into the house of Rimmon to worship thee, and he leaneth on my hand, and I bow myself in the, in the house of Rimmon, when I bow down myself to the, in the house of Rimmon, the Lord pardon thy servant in this thing. He probably does not ask this question as a possibility, but as a situation he has been involved in. His king worships his idol, Rimmon. And he, as a military commander, is required by his king to help him out when he has to go into the house of Rimmon. He goes there to help the king down and to lift him back up. And so when he is serving the king in this way, he will be on his knees in the house of Rimmon, not to worship, but in assistance of his monarch. And his question is, can the Lord forgive this matter? Can this soldier serve the king that the Lord has appointed over him while worshiping only the Lord? We may find Elisha's response rather equivocal in verse 19, and he said unto him, Go in peace. Elisha lives in Israel, where they think little about the niceties of worship. Two golden calves have replaced their duty to, to Jerusalem. There is no hindrance to them going to the land of their brothers. Recently, the nation had followed the king and queen into the idolatry that Naaman himself seeks to escape. The temple of Baal and Asherah probably might be actually seen by Elisha at this point, just down the road. In that city, where Jezebel still lives. Imagine Elisha's emotion seeing the object of his nation's hatred, a commander of the army that had killed its king and kidnapped its people, standing there more concerned about his worship than all of his neighbors. Elisha might covet Naaman's faith spreading to his nation. 
Instead, he has to send him back to Syria to worship the Lord as best he can in obedience to the law. Naaman does not become a proselyte, and yet he leaves cleansed. At that time, nationality separated people from complete access to the presence of the Lord, as demonstrated by Naaman's separation from Jerusalem. But my friend, that situation no longer exists. The presence of God no longer resides only in temples or tabernacles or altars. It appears by His Spirit in the hearts of all of His people. Today that blessing is offered to you. And I urge you to follow Naaman's example. Naaman knew his problem. He was unclean and could not heal himself. And so we all are. The Bible tells us that all have sinned and come short of the glory of God. The wages of sin is death. Death and hell are what we deserve for our rebellion against God. But God chose to heal. He sent Jesus into the world. God the Son made man. He lived a sinless life. He died on the cross, shedding his blood to cleanse his people from sin. He rose from the grave to show the power of that cleansing to bring new life. He offers that healing to everyone who believes in Jesus. The question you must answer is, do you believe that what Jesus did, he did for you? Will you follow Naaman, turning from sin and obediently worshiping the Lord God Almighty? Purity demands worship. Purity demands pure worship. We might prefer to cavil and criticize the imperfections of Naaman's worship. In the Old Testament administration, it is difficult to imagine a more faithful outcome for such a man. It stands in condemnation of those in Israel who didn't have the excuse of Naaman, and yet showed less concern about the purity of worship. In the New Testament, we have no excuse we could advance for Naaman. Nothing prevents our pure worship in the New Covenant, where geography is irrelevant, where nationality means nothing spiritually, and where images are still forbidden. We don't need to go to Jerusalem. We don't need a cart of dirt. We don't need an altar. All we need is the Spirit and the truth of the Word. God gives his people purity to bring them into his worship. That is the story of Naaman. Here is a man from Syria, the enemy of enemies, one who probably, other than the king of Syria, you would least expect to become a worshiper of the one true God. And yet, through God's providence, he brings them into that worship. Brings him into the worship so much that he commits himself to it, and even is concerned about his own purity. Oh, that we would care for the worship of the Lord as much as Naaman did. Let's pray together. O oh Lord, forgive our failure in worship. Humble our hearts before your means of grace. Remind us that we are not God, but assure us of the promise of your sanctifying power and grace. Give us patience as we wait on your timing and on your ways. And hear our prayer in Jesus' name. Amen.